0: Come before you. This morning with a, a mixture of many emotions, I feel sadness to be able to leave it, to be leaving all of you at the end of this week. Uh, we take off Friday for uh, Points West. Uh, we have so many friends here, so many of you that we love and have loved us over the last four years, and it's uh, uh, it's been a great privilege to be here with you, to serve among you. Feel great gratitude for all that you've done for us, the friendships that you've given us, the love, the warmth, the many things that you've taught us, the ways you've encouraged us and, and helped us uh, over the years. And of course, we also have excitement to see what God is going to do. Uh, the ministry that's we're going to jump into uh, when we get to Singapore and we're uh, anticipating greatly what's going to happen there. Well, as I thought about what I should share with you my last Sunday here, I felt it most appropriate to have some sort of parting challenge from the Word. And a verse kept coming back into my mind, Philippians 1.27. It's a verse that that embodies uh, my prayer for Cole Community Church. We're used to uh, studying through a larger section on Sunday morning, but the more I looked at this verse, the more it seemed to me that it was so full of meaning and application for us that I felt it best to stick with this one verse. Now, since this is my parting shot, I thought I would give you the, the best outline I could come up with. Holly uh, said it's not really an outline, it's more, like a, uh, it's more like a manuscript, but you have it in your uh, bulletin so you can follow along. All of us need to have a sense of purpose in life. We need to know what our purpose is, what our calling is, to be able to maintain our sense of direction. Chris Riddell shared with me this week that when he went off to college, before his freshman year, his father sat him down and imparted to him some sage advice. He said, Chris, as you go to college, you must make up your mind whether you're going as a missionary or as a mission field. You can go as a missionary, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ on that college campus. But if not, you will become a mission field, and you will become prey to the many secular influences that are competing for your mind and your life. Chris said that he pondered his father's advice a great deal, and that it set the whole course of his direction in college. He went determining to fulfill that purpose, to be a missionary, to be God's representative there in the campus. And he said that because of his father's advice, he was able to experience uh, four years of college that were were stable spiritually, productive as he was involved in ministry with other people. And yet he saw around him people who were floundering and wavering and, and unsure, Christians who were tossed to and fro. Well, Philippians 1.27 gives to us As a church, our sense of calling, our purpose, that we might be directed and guided by it. Paul says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel." Now, the Philippian Christians were a new church in a hostile pagan environment in a Roman city. They had Jewish opponents, as Paul mentions in chapter 3. He he says, beware of the dogs, the false circumcision, those who are trying to pervert the gospel you have and bring you into a a legalistic, Judaistic uh, form of religion. At the same time, he says, you have uh, Gentile opponents, people who are threatened and offended by your high morality. in chapter 3 says they're enemies of the cross, whose God is their belly, uh, and they don't like your uh, a moral lifestyle, and therefore they're, they're opposed to you. And Paul calls upon these people to stand firm in their purpose, in their calling in life, in the midst of opposition. He calls upon them to do the same thing he wants to do, in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says that he's, Paul himself is writing from prison. He doesn't know what lies ahead, whether he'll be killed for the faith or whether he'll be released. And he says that his desire is that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And Paul says, this is my aim. This is my ambition. And then he says, as for you, and the word only in verse 27, this means as for you, whatever happens to me, whether I'm set free from prison or whether I'm killed here, as for you, only make sure that you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this phrase, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, could mean many things. It certainly would mean that we're to conduct ourselves with dignity, the dignity of those who have a sense of calling and purpose in life. We're not to fritter our lives away in mere frivolity. We realize that we're here with a purpose. On the other hand, we're not to uh, indulge and be overcome with self-pity, thinking that we are insignificant and nothing ever good happens to us, because we are people of a high calling. The word conduct here is, uh, the Greek word is politoumai, from which we get our word politics. And it means to live as a citizen, enjoying all of the benefits of citizenship, and also fulfilling all of the responsibilities that come with it. Now this would be a, a term that the Philippians themselves would be very familiar with. They would understand the impact of it. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. The Philippians had been granted citizenship by Rome. They had the uh, enviable privilege of what was called jus italicum. The law, according to this law, Philippi was treated as if it were on Italian soil. They'd have all the rights and the privileges of Roman law and property uh, ownership and government administration and taxation. They were not treated as a colony in the same sense that a 19th century uh, colony of a European power was treated, exploited simply for the mother country. No, they were treated as Romans on Greek soil. It was a high privilege. It was such a high privilege that people would pay a high price to buy their citizenship. And Paul says, conduct yourselves uh, in a way worthy of of your citizenship. In chapter 3, verse 20... He says, our citizenship, our polytuma, is in heaven. So you as Philippians not only are citizens of Rome, but as they would think as well, you are citizens of heaven. And he says, conduct yourselves in a manner that's appropriate with your citizenship. We might think of King Arthur with his knights at the round table, uh, appealing to them to live up to the code of, of chivalry and to live with honor and dignity and purpose to fulfill the high calling that their privileged position gave them. This is the same sort of thing that Paul is, is appealing to us, to live with dignity, to live with purpose, with a certain seriousness about us, to live with responsibility, not only to enjoy the privileges of our citizenship in heaven, but to fulfill the responsibilities. The citizen of, a, of an ancient city in Greece or Rome would know that that they had responsibilities to participate in the policy-making of the cities, to, to participate in the public life, fulfill their political responsibilities. We, too, as Christians, are responsible to be not mere spectators at church, but active participants, fulfilling our own individual responsibility here. But notice that Paul says, "...conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." He doesn't say conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ, though of course we're to do that as well, but in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're to be people whose lives show that we take the gospel seriously by the way we order our time, by the way we use our resources, by the priorities we choose. We show that we're living in a manner worthy of the gospel. We believe that this is true. We also exemplify for those around us the realities of the gospel. We demonstrate to them the joy in life, the confidence, the peace of mind that come from knowing uh, the God of the universe being counted as his children. And of course these are not things which we should paste on our faces every morning, but realities which become increasingly ours as we pursue our own relationship with the Lord. as we make that a priority. Well, these are some of the things that that would be implied by the phrase to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But then in the second half of the verse, Paul focuses in on one particular way in which he wants the Philippians and, by extension, us to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. He says, whether I get out of prison or not, I want to find out that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want to see that you are living according to, to your purpose and the calling that God has given us to live for the purpose of the extension of the gospel on this world. in this world. He says that we're to stand firm. Now, the picture that comes to my mind by this phrase, to stand firm, is, is a picture of a soldier in a Roman army. And as I picture him in my mind, I see him uh, tempted on three different fronts to give up the battle and to flee. I see him tempted because of the strength of the enemy opposition. His life is threatened and endangered. I see him tempted by a, a, uh, an enticing, beautiful woman who comes and tries to tempt him into her arms to flee the battle and enjoy life with her. And I see him tempted because of frustrations over his own army, maybe some incompetence of one of his leaders, maybe infighting between different uh, uh, battalions within the army, and he's tempted to give up the battle. In the same kinds of ways, we as Christians are tempted to give up the battle. We're tempted because the opposition is, is sometimes very strong. We don't want to be excluded from a social circle. We don't want to have the possibility of being passed over for a job or promotion because we make people feel uncomfortable by the, the, our outspokenness about Christianity. We don't want to be ridiculed and thought of as religious weirdos. And so we're tempted to give up the fight and flee from the battle. We're tempted and lured by very various temptresses of this world, enticing us to leave the, the difficulties of the battle, to go off into a life of pleasure, living for the moment, living for ourselves. And I know that some of us are tempted, as I've, I've talked with Christians who have given up on the church because of the insensitivity of a Christian leader or because of petty infighting in a, uh, in a church or bickering among people. They've gotten tired of it and have given up But Paul calls upon the Philippians, and upon us as well, to stand firm. And he says that we're to stand firm in unity, in one spirit, with one mind. Now, the idea of standing in unity is is, uh, difficult in this age. We live in a very individualistic age. We're told to look out for number one. We're told that the most important thing in life is to seek our own personal peace and affluence. The thought of working for the common good is thought to be passe, out of date. But this kind of individualism is, is really worldliness in one of its worst forms. Unfortunately, it's influence the church all too much. But Paul calls upon us to fight in a united effort. In one, uh, in one spirit, he says with one mind, or literally with one soul, as one man fighting together for the gospel. In 1066, William <laughs> invaded England from Normandy. And at first he was repelled by the uh, impenetrable English defense led by King Harold. Harold had all of his soldiers lined up with uh, three or four rows of of uh, Shield holders. The men were shoulder to shoulder with great big shields, forming a protective barrier for the archers and the spearsmen behind. And as long as they stood their ground and stood firm in unity, then William was unable to penetrate the English forces. But William instructed his men to feign uh, retreat and to draw the English troops out of uh, out of line, which they did. And then William was able to become William the Conqueror. It's amazing what we can do as Christians if we will stand united, working together, each serving, fulfilling his or her own part in the body in the battle that God has given us. But as we each try to fight our own battle, do what, simply what we think is best or what we want to do, then we'll be conquered as even as the English forces were back then. Well, what kinds of things are detractors from the unity that God calls us to? Well, there are many things. Uh, One that Paul mentions in chapter 2 is selfishness. He says in verses 2 to 4, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As we're intent on our various uh, multifaceted purposes, each trying to build our own little kingdoms, then we experience division and chaos and ineffectiveness in our ministry. But as we're intent united in one purpose as paul says in verse 2 the purpose of glorifying god and of and of working for the good of his kingdom then we can do amazing things another one of those detractors is uh, related to selfishness is competitiveness james says in chapter 3 of his epistle that wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder and every vile practice It's amazing what can be accomplished if we don't care who gets the credit for it. But of course we all experience the fleshly temptation to compare and we wonder, now why was Bill chosen to lead the Bible study and not me? Or why is it that that Mary gets asked to sing uh, at the church meetings more often than I do? What's wrong with me? And we're interested in, uh, we're tempted to be interested in our own good rather than the common good. Those who are coaches coaches of uh, athletic teams know the vital importance of unity and of the uh, great danger that that this inner competitiveness can bring. When I was in high school uh, playing football, one of my good friends uh, had the audacity to go to the coach and complain that he was not getting to carry the ball enough. So the coach was irate. He got a big piece of adhesive tape and wrote hero on it. And then he put it on Mark's helmet And then he said, okay, you want to run at the ball, then you run at the ball. And he called ten plays in a row where Mark was to run at the ball and he told all of us linemen, don't block for him. (laughs) We've got to to put an end to this selfish ambition. Because as we're working each for our own glory, then chaos results. But as as we work for the common good and put aside our own personal interests, what we want to do, what's fun and, and thrilling for us and we serve the needs that exist uh, then it's amazing what can happen another thing that factor that uh, threatens the unity is letting minor differences be get blown out of proportion in Paul's day the biggest difference was the cultural differences between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Romans chapter 14 he writes to them and he says, Some people think they can eat any kind of food. Other people think that they're restricted by the Mosaic dietary regulations or can eat only vegetables. Some people think that that they can treat all days the same. Others feel that they must keep the Sabbath. And Paul's instruction to them basically is, is, uh, you are servants of God who is our master. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Before his own master he will stand or fall. And he says, don't pass judgment on one another over these matters of conscience, over these things about which you differ. Remain united so that with one voice the church might glorify God. In our day, the differences, of course, are not the, the Jew-Gentile differences. But we have differences in uh, how we interpret different portions of prophecy, differences over how Christians understand uh, or believe God went about the process of creating the world or differences about matters of conduct about which the Bible is not, uh, does not address. And Paul says, says, I desire that you labor together in one spirit, in one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel, not being divided by any of these things, putting aside your own ways, and being willing in humility to accept one another and to work together for the common good. He says that we should be united not simply for the purpose of being united, not simply that we might have a smooth and easy time together, but that we should be united so that together we can strive for the gospel. Now, the word translated strive here is the Greek word athleo, from which we get the word Athletics. It was used in Paul's day of, of participating in a, uh, an athletic contest like boxing or wrestling or, or uh, foot races. Paul says that you're to work hard, laboring for this goal. I think it's instructive for us to ask ourselves the question, what do we view as the ideal Christian life? Is it sitting in a mountain cabin, listening to the latest Christian records? Or is it being in the, on the battlefield, in the ghetto, on the campus, in the office, in the neighborhood, laboring for the gospel, in difficulty, putting up with, uh, with rejection from people, uh, working hard to extend the gospel and to defend it amidst the many detractors that exist within our community? Paul says, I, I long to see that you are striving together for the faith of the gospel, now what would striving together mean for us at Cole Community Church? Uh, a friend told me recently that he felt that that of all the churches he's been in, more is happening here spiritually than in any church he's been in. and yet still he said that we're just we're just scratching the surface of our potential. I think we should rejoice at what God has done, what he's doing, and yet not become complacent. Let's dream for a little bit about what this might mean, striving for the faith of the gospel. on your sheet there, I've suggested some different topics you can follow along. How about the ministry of hospitality? Many people come to the church here for various reasons. Some are spiritually open and hungry non-Christians who are looking for reality and truth in life. Others are Christians who are maybe hurting, out of fellowship, or young in their faith and looking for a place where they can be nurtured. Unfortunately, many people find warmth and welcome and are loved into the fellowship, but many others just pass through the doors and no one ever reaches out to them. They feel that they're always strangers. What might happen if every stranger who passed through these doors were welcomed with an open hospitality? Maybe we were invited over for a Sunday dinner after church or invited to a, a growth group. Everyone were made to feel loved and feel special and welcome. Tom Johnson is the uh, uh, leader of our first to third grade Sunday school group and he's there for a number of reasons. One is because he knows the potential that a, that a good Sunday school ministry combined with a good hospitality ministry can have. When Tom was a child, his non-Christian parents Dropped him off at church every Sunday. Uh, his Sunday school teacher found out his parents didn't come to church and found out when his mom got pregnant, and she organized a, a shower for Tom's mom through the church. Several of the ladies got together and, and uh, got some baby clothes uh, for this new baby and, and put this on for him. And at the shower, Tom's mother met many people. They continued to reach out to her and kept inviting her to different church activities. And finally, she and her husband became involved in the church, they, and within a year, they both became Christians, became excited about the Lord. Tom's dad, Glenn, went off to Bible school, then went off to Vietnam as a, a missionary, till he, where he had an effective ministry until he was run out by the communists, uh, and now he's the pastor of a large church in Spokane. All because of the, the love of some people who were willing to reach out in warmth, in hospitality, and not simply come to see their friends, but look for ministries of uh, uh, opportunities for outreach and uh, hospitality as they gather them uh, together. Or we can think of what might happen in terms of prison ministry. There are several men who have become involved in ministry in the prison uh, recently, Bill Hall and some others. Uh, and yet we're just scratching the surface. Just think of the potential this one church could have on the men who are imprisoned in the the state pen near here, and their families who come, they move here, many of them. They're isolated, they're uh, uh, impoverished, they're troubled, and they're more open than any time they've ever been in their life to love, to help, to aid. Think of the potential if we could reach out to these people in love and companionship and uh, bring them the gospel. Think of the potential to society, If we could win many of these men to Christ, help them rebuild their lives. As you probably know, most of the people who get out of the penitentiary end up committing crimes again. Most crimes are committed by ex-offenders. What an impact we might have just on society should we be able to love some of these people, patiently work with them until we could help them rebuild a constructive life. Or think of the potential that exists with the the, the uh, kids that hang out at Ann Morrison Park, the lowriders and the dropouts, or the high school crowd. Young people are more open to change than, than uh, those of us who are old. I feel uh, I'm getting old now. Uh, my wife and I both came to know Christ when we were in high school through a, uh, the outreach of Young Life. Dedicated Mormons all spend uh, two years giving themselves to missionary duty. What might happen if all of our young people were to give two years to uh, uh, evangelistic ministry, to the high school crowd, to the park crowd, and be supported by their parents for, for this ministry, even as the uh, the Mormon people do for their young people. Think of the potential, the impact that might happen as we send dozens of, of young workers throughout the the, uh, the city with time to to love and to reach out and befriend and win people to Christ. Or think of what might happen if we, uh, in the training of our own children, if we were to take with the utmost of seriousness the need to strive for the faith of the gospel and training our own children. What might the impact on the next generation of the church be if we were all diligent in teaching our own children spiritual truth, leading them in Bible learning? leading them into ministry opportunities and laboring to have a a vital, uh, high-quality Sunday school program to supplement. them. Or think of what might happen in uh, personal evangelism if we were to pray more for our friends at work and in our neighborhoods and encourage one another to reach out more. I know that uh, Jerry Helling was responsible for uh, bringing his, his boss to know Christ through his patient, faithful witness at work. Uh, I had the joy of doing a wedding yesterday, and Bruce Vanderhoff uh, and Molly's sister, uh, uh, Bruce has met a guy at at his uh, shop, sign shop, a couple years ago, and uh, kept witnessing to Brad about a year and a half ago. Brad came to know the Lord, and Bruce has worked with him to disciple him and train him, and then gave him his uh, sister-in-law to marry. Uh, (laughs) Think of what might happen if we were to, to devote ourselves more thoroughly to outreach in our own communities and uh, spheres of influence. Or what might happen in terms of international student outreach? As you know, the, uh, some of the most gifted and talented and potentially influential students from foreign countries come to America for uh, uh, college and graduate studies. And when they're here, they're generally more open spiritually than they've ever been or would be in their own countries. They're freed from the societal pressures of, uh, of a, a different religion. They're freed from the family pressures to maintain the family traditional religion. Uh, many of them come from a place where, where very few people, if any, are Christians, and they see that Christianity is uh, respectable and it's worthy of consideration. I know that through uh, the ministry of some of our students on campus, uh, a, a woman from Japan and a woman from Thailand have both become Christians over this last year. Uh, last, uh, earlier this month, Holly and I were down in, in Palo Alto uh, at a support-raising meeting, and we visited Dave and Robin Malin, who used to be a part of us here. And they're involved in a, uh, an international student ministry at Stanford. And Dave told me that one of the students from mainland China who's there has come to Christ uh, this year. What an exciting potential. We'd never be able to go over there and, and reach them. Well, the Rayburgs are, are hosting a, a monthly international dinners. Some of our students are involved in outreach to them. But what, what might happen if each of the international students at BSU were befriended by a family in the church who would love them and take them in uh, and, uh, and over time share with them the gospel and, uh, and if they respond, maybe train them to be able to send them back as missionaries to their own countries or let's dream about the possibility of single parent ministry the single parents are growing as a segment in our community and throughout our nation they are people with tremendous needs bearing the responsibility to work full-time and mother and father full-time uh, it's quite overwhelming when uh, holly and i were were uh, living in dallas we knew two couples who adopted a single-parent family. And every Wednesday, they'd have the family in for uh, uh, Bible studies with their children. Uh, They would be available for counsel and advice and support for the single mothers and repair service in the homes, a father figure for the kids. What might happen in terms of of building lives if every single-parent family in our church were so adopted and then we reached out to our community at large, and and met and loved uh, the needs of, of the single parent families. What might happen in in uh, reclaiming many lives from from chaos uh, and bringing them to, to Christ and and harmony and wholeness? Or what might happen in terms of our potential for international ministry through Cole Community Church? Now, the average giving towards international missions. Uh, from a, for American Christians is $10 per year. Now, I'm uh, proud to be part of a church whose giving pattern is, is much, much greater than that. And we're doing a great deal. We're committed here to, to spreading the gospel around the world. But what might happen? Should we be more committed? Should we take more seriously the need to do as Jesus said, to pray for workers to go into the field? to pray for the needy countries. What might happen if we all take on that prayer sheet today and pray for China as we're asked to do on there and to pray for our missionaries like the Brambilas and their need and their, that they may be more effective in their ministry in Mexico. What might happen if, if we might uh, as individuals try to investigate more how we might be involved by going to be a graduate student in Russia, by going to... Uh, be a teacher, school teacher in Nigeria, teaching religious education in government schools, by going to be a Peace Corps worker in Burma, by going to be an engineer in Saudi Arabia, as well as the more traditional forms of of missionary activity. Well, as I dream these kinds of dreams and think about what striving for the faith of the gospel might mean to us, I'm excited about what might be. Now, obviously, we can't... uh, None of us can do all of these things. And we do need to remind ourselves that we're not accepted by Christ based upon how much we do. We're, ex- we're accepted based upon His grace, not about upon our religious works. But what might happen? Should we more uh, uh, de- devote ourselves more to striving for the faith of the gospel? Not just playing with church. Not just coming for our own personal growth and emotional health, not just seeking to have a pleasant fellowship, but as we grasp hold of the purpose that God has laid out for us here, to strive for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul says that we're to strive for the faith of the gospel. We're to realize that God has entrusted to us the truth that people need to know. Mankind is lost on the sheet I gave you, we don't have time to read through all of that. You could do that on your own. But I've summarized for you some of the, most of the main competitors for men's minds and faiths for their lives in this world today. We must have the mindset that, that throughout this world there are millions of people, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, secularists, animists, those who have uh, imbibed a, a legalistic works form of Christianity, or those who have have imbibed a liberal, watered-down view of Christianity. God has given us the truth. The tragic thing about all these other systems of belief is that they're not true. And because they're not true, they will not live up to their promises. They will not fulfill men. God has given you and me that which is true, has entrusted it to us so that we... Can strive to defend and propagate the gospel throughout this world. An example that that sticks in my mind of a church that embodies the truth of Philippians 1:27 is the Moravian Church of the uh, uh, 18th century. In 1722, a group of of Protestant uh, religious refugees settled on the estate of of uh, uh, Nicholas Ludwig Count von Zinzendorf in Eastern Europe. He has a beautiful name, doesn't he? He has One of his hymns is in our hymnal. Uh, and in, uh, 17, in 1727, they were organized into a religious community, a church, with Zinzendorf as their leader. And they united themselves... They brought about a a unity in their midst by love and obedience to the Lord and faith and and patient acceptance and working with one another. And then they united themselves for the purpose of striving for the faith of the gospel. They strove to to renew the church within the dead uh, Christian church within Europe. They're influential for reviving the the, uh, Lutheran Church of Germany. It was Moravians who reached John Wesley, the Anglican priest, with the gospel and helped him understand justification by faith and how to uh, uh, live a vital uh, personal relationship with Christ on a daily basis. And then John Wesley uh, was responsible for touching the whole of the Church of England with revival. And then in 1732, just five years after the Moravians were organized into a church. They sent out their first missionaries. And if you see on their list, you see the, the, uh, the fantastic world vision this church had. Particularly, It's particularly remarkable at a time when other churches didn't send out missionaries. In 1732, they sent out missionaries to the West Indian Island of St. Thomas. Uh, they sent out an average of one out of every 60 members to the mission field, and this in spite of great difficulties. Seventy-five of the first hundred and sixty of their missionaries to uh, Guyana died of poisonings and tropical fever, fever and the like. But they sent out, kept sending out missionaries to more and more fields. In, in 1733 to Greenland, to the North American Indians in 1734, to Suriname in 1735. They beat the Levitts there by over 200 years. <laughs> to South Africa in 1736, to uh, the Samoyedic people of the Arctic, 1737, to Algiers in 1740, Ceylon 1740, China 1742, Persia 1747, uh, Abyssinia 1752, Labrador 1752, and pioneer work, going places where nobody else was going with the gospel. This was a church which embodied the truth of Philippians 1.27. They took seriously the, the The notion that God has given us the truth and that men need to hear that truth so that they can experience joy and harmony in this life and so that they can avoid eternal destruction in the next. They were united in purpose and did all they did. It was a small church of 600 people to begin with. And they did all they did to labor for the spread of the gospel throughout the earth. And as I think about them and I think about us, my prayer and my dream and my hope is that Cole Community Church might be uh, modeled after this Moravian church and that we might be, in a, in a way that we haven't even seen before, united in spirit around this one central purpose of striving for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it instructs us and guides us and directs us. Lord, I pray for my church here, for these dear people whom I love. I pray for an outpouring of your spirit in new and fresh ways that many might be grabbed hold of you in ways that they haven't known before. That you would bring about an increased unity, love, acceptance, and that that unity might be for the purpose of glorifying and serving you. I pray for the impact of the Billy Graham crusade coming up this summer, that we might labor together to pray, to give, to reach out to our neighbors and friends, to bring them to counsel, to follow up on people even when we are tired and want to sit at home. And I pray that many of the dreams we spoke of might become increasing realities in the life of this church. We pray for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.